Welcome to Broad Gauge Gossips, the podcast where you can learn about the faculty of the Department of Military History in the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, this is Dr. Jonathan Abel, and we're here with Dr. Amanda Nagel. Hello. And she is new to our department, um, although not new to the Army. So, Dr. Nagel, why don't you give us a little bit about your academic background first? Uh, So, I received my bachelor's um, in history and honors from the University of North Dakota, a master's from the University of Idaho, um, and my PhD from the University of Mississippi um, in 2014. Uh, From there, I've been teaching at a number of institutions, including Winona State University in Minnesota, as well as the United States Military Academy. Um, And I just recently came here from the School of Advanced Military Studies. So I've been at Fort Leavenworth now for five years. Okay, so um, let's start with uh, kind of the academic side and we'll talk more the professional. Um, Tell us what your research and writing interests are. Um, So I research uh, race, war, empire, the early 20th century, Jim Crow, um, all that sort of stuff, Uh, masculinity as well. Um, So my focus is wars of empire for the United States between 1898 and 1926. So of course that includes the Spanish-American War, Philippine-American War, and World War I, all through the lens of studying African-American soldiers and their experiences during this time frame, Um, particularly when you have uh, um, such turmoil in the United States, um, the rise of Jim Crow, what that means for these soldiers who are also perpetuating empire, um, participating in essentially the subjugation of other peoples while they are themselves being subjugated at home, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's, that's kind of my, my main focus. Um, I do have um, uh, emphases um, during my PhD in both African-American history from the antebellum era through the 1960s and um, global conflict. So essentially Europe um, pre-1914 as well as World Wars One and Two. Okay, very good. Um, on kind of more on the academic and personal side, you, you said that you kind of did your upper Midwest studies and then migrated to mm-hmm. the, the Gulf South for your PhD. So how, how did you make that transition? Well, uh, it it actually, part of that was just um, when I was at the University of North Dakota, one of my advisors told me, well, you got to go somewhere else for your master's. You got to go somewhere else again for your PhD. So (laughs) that's kind of, uh, that's kind of how it happened is that um, I got into the University of Idaho. Therefore, um, I chose to go to school there um, as opposed to a couple of the other schools that I had gotten into just cost wise. It was more, um, more effective and then um, went to the University of Mississippi because I wanted to work with a couple of the PhDs there for my, uh, uh, for my dissertation. Um, and so it, it was uh, an interesting transition <laughs> going from uh, rural North Dakota to then kind of rural Idaho in the Panhandle and then Mississippi. Um, but um, it, it, it helped, I think, with the topic that I was looking at and kind of getting an idea for how to write about um, race and war 
mm-hmm. just because of some of the people that I got a chance to work with. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so what, what kind of classes have you taught, um, accepting the uh, SAMS course, which we'll talk about later? Right. Um, so when I was at uh, the uh, the uh, uh, Winona State University, I got a chance to create a couple of upper division courses. And so one of them was uh, U.S. War and Empire. And so we started with uh, the early 1800s uh, with uh, um, the Jeffersonian um, Empire of Liberty um, during his presidency and worked all the way up into um, the the 1980s um, and looking at um, Latin America. So it, it, it was a really interesting course. Um, the next semester, I was able to create a total war in the United States class. So we started with the Civil War, finished with post-World War II, and uh, at least one of my students was very frustrated <laughs> by the end of the semester uh, after he discovered that there are far too many uh, definitions of total war and and uh, he was still a little confused as mm-hmm. to what it actually meant and uh, uh, that I mean in the end that was kind of the point mm-hmm. um, prior to that when I was at the University of Mississippi um, I was able to teach upper divisions in the United States uh, essentially the first world war through 1945 and then 1945 to the present um, I've also taught um, ROTC um, uh, the American military experience, colonial warfare through the second Gulf War. Um, and then while I was at uh, USMA, um, they had me teaching. Uh, so, so for those USMA grads um, who are very familiar with the, the love or hate of mill art. Um, <laughs> so it's the, the history of the military art, um, first to 1900 and then 1900 to the present. Mm-hmm. That was what I was teaching there. Um, okay. So you, you've taught a fair amount of, as you mentioned, undergraduate mm-hmm. courses, and you've also taught at the SAMS course, which mm-hmm. uh, for our listeners is, is a, an optional second year for a very small percentage of CGSC graduates. So you've essentially bracketed ILE. You've taught the undergraduate um, courses that a lot of people you know, people will take before they get to CGSC. You've taught this the, in some ways the second year of CGSC. Mm-hmm. So how does that help to prepare you to teach these CGSC courses? Well, I think because um, I kind of know roughly where they're starting and where they've come after um, going to CGSC. So I, in some ways, I, I know some of the holes that that need to be filled and then need to continue to be filled mm-hmm. um, in their second year. So I think that prepares me for uh, understanding roughly where the student body is and how long it's been since they've last had a history course, mm-hmm. uh, since they've last been writing, all of these sorts of things. Um, I, and, and in some ways, it's just finding, finding a way to meet them where they are. Um, to bring them up to speed and get them to where they need to be when when they go out the door. Mm-hmm. And, and related to teaching and your expertise, we are lucky here in Kansas City to be very close to the World War One Museum and, and National Monument, I guess is the right term. Yes. Um, so what advantage is that to you, both for your studies and for your teaching? Well, uh, it is my favorite place in Kansas City, so <laughs> <laughs> that does help. Um, it's... In, in, in part, it's, it's useful because as a member of the museum and someone who, who goes down frequently and has been invited for uh, a, a few talks here and there, 
um, at the museum and, and continuing to grow that relationship um, with the curators, that is, I think, really useful for me to then be able to pass that on to students and get them thinking particularly about public memory and public history and the way we depict uh, involvement in wars, memory of wars, peacemaking, all that sort of stuff. And that's all on display at this museum. Um, and it's so close. Mm-hmm. So it's something to, to, to definitely encourage students to go and experience, especially with the rotation of exhibits that they have uh, constantly, um, but bringing new, new things there. I mean, additionally, there's a, a number of speakers who come frequently that the students wouldn't have a chance to uh, engage with in any other venue so it's i mean it's it's honestly it's something that that the cgsc is really lucky to have close by that not every school does mm-hmm. right um to, to to have so many great scholars traveling in to talk about their work um and particularly their work on warfare mm-hmm. that's not something that students at many universities or even within PME have access to. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's kind of a unique, it's a un, unique thing for um, students here to be able to, to just drive 45 minutes and mm-hmm. <laughs> both enjoy the museum and then and, and, and get to see a, a variety of speakers talk. Yeah, and, and another aspect you, you mentioned, this kind of public history, public facing history aspect mm-hmm. of it. What's the value to students and officers to be able to have eyes on, or, or in some cases even hands on, actual items from the time period in history, in this case World War One? Oh, I, I think it's just getting a feel for the weight of say, the object, whatever it is, but also trying to understand and, and, and think through how does this compare to what they've experienced themselves, mm-hmm. right? What is the weight uh, of uh, a 1903 Springfield compared to um, weapons that they've held, right? What does that then get them thinking about in terms of um, a pack that they've carried versus the packs that are being carried there? Um what does the material of a, of a World War I era um, uniform feel like in comparison to their own? How does that factor into then thinking about, okay, how, how does warfare then change because of some of these different types of equipment uh, and, and then put the, putting that into an environment? Um, you know, and, and, and how does that then affect what soldiers can and cannot do. I, I think like the, the hands-on portion and being able to see and or touch um, and handle some of these artifacts is really important because then it kind of brings that back to, it's one of those weird things with, with history, it brings things back to life in some sense. And so being able to do that is uh, just yet another way that students learn and so for some of them, that hands-on experience is going to be much more impactful than talking in class or reading in a book or, or mm-hmm. pick, pick your thing. And in some cases, it brings that sort of experience to life in a different way. It's kind of a historical empathy. Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, I, we share both being military historians and having fields in gender studies. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that that's a, a relatively unexplored field in lots of ways. Um, one of the main ways it has started to be is through this idea of masculinity. Um, so, so how does that play into the way militaries and soldiers think about themselves, particularly in the past when ex they were pretty close to exclusively male? So I think it, it comes down to some, some of the ways that societies were thinking about masculinity. Um, and in some ways, it, it, it influenced the way soldiers thought about this, soldiers and officers, um, and, and, and sailors, marines, etc. Right? All military personnel are thinking about this in, in various ways. Um, in the case of what I study um, with African Americans, the, the emphasis on masculinity is twofold because there's a racial element to this as well. Um, and so the way men are thinking about this is that not just military service, but military service plus citizenship and um, not just military service, but military service and self-defense, right? It's, there are different elements going on here in terms of how um, men are thinking about what they're doing and how then that can be applied elsewhere in their lives. Um, so in the case of some of the soldiers that, that I study, um, some of them, and we really sought to, when they returned home from war, become what are referred to as race men. So essentially, they were they would be leaders of um, African American communities, so leaders activists. in in some cases activists. Yes, but it's also um, they are um, respectable citizens. They they have they can defend their community mm. um, in in ways that um, are are particularly important when you consider. Um, uh, racial violence as well as sexual violence that is taking place in a lot of places in the United States and particularly um, targeting uh, black men and women. And so that is a portion of the way that some of these men are thinking about this and that they are going to assert their manhood by taking part in, in something like war and warfare and, and being a soldier. But they're also gaining, um, the, the idea is that they're also potentially then pushing the boundaries of citizenship, pushing against limited citizenship that is created through Jim Crow to then become full citizens, not only themselves, but also bring that citizenship back to their communities and, and, and essentially uplift the race. That's, that's kind of the, the terminology that they would use. And so for them to be race men, mm -hmm. um, that was very important to then become that leader in the community, but also, like you said, sometimes it's activism as well. Mm -hmm. And so you do see a lot of um, African-American soldiers during this time frame when they come back from either the Spanish-American War, Philippine-American War, or even World War I, become involved in activist organizations. Um, sometimes they create their own mm -hmm. um, because that is something that, that is important to them to try to continue um, fighting for what the U.S. promised in the First World War that it didn't accomplish, right? The making the world safe for democracy, right? Mm -hmm. That line. Yeah. Um, and so that's something that drives a lot of them 
is is and and they see it through in some in some cases the lens of masculinity and and the the word that they would use was manhood right right, right? right. Um, and so it was an assertion of of essentially black manhood and and um, what some termed the quote uh, quote unquote uh, best um, black best man mm-hmm. I think I think is the the if I remember correctly the terminology so that's the sort of thing that um, how gender really factors into studies of um, of warfare in that there's a lot more going on when it comes to specifically ideas of what men are, who men are, and how they should act. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in some cases, it then leads to um, conflict um, with civilians, depending on where you are and, and what the environment uh, entails. Mm-hmm. No, certainly. That's very interesting. All right, so let's close with a question that's a little different. Um, I don't know if you're unique in the history of the Department of Military History, but it's certainly rare in that you were a college athlete. So tell us what that experience was like. (laughs) Yes. uh, At the University of North Dakota, I was a high jumper on the track and field team. Um, uh, It it really, it was a lot of fun. Um, (laughs) I I miss many of my teammates. Uh, I keep in touch with a few of them. and, and that's been, oh my goodness, I've known them now for, some of them now for 20 years. Oh, we were getting old. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it was a lot of fun because what it did was it, it kind of, it got me into um, a routine of figuring out how to manage my time best when certain amounts of time were just full on disappeared from my schedule because they had to they had to be devoted to um, mm-hmm. certain things, but but yeah, it was I was uh, I, I was uh, the potentially one of one of the weirder uh, <laughs> weirder ones in that um, I uh, <laughs> majored in history and honors could have probably graduated in three and a half years, but I took an extra semester so I could have that last <laughs> last yeah. year on 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 the track and field team and. Um, yeah, I think it's it set me up for kind of figuring out how to balance work, school, and something else. Mm-hmm. And uh, that actually helped a lot once I got to grad school when I had to balance a couple of different jobs and uh, grad school itself. So, <laughs> Dr. Nagel, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Please be sure to check out our other podcast, A Confused Heap of Facts, where we sit down with military historians from the Department of Military History and special guests to talk about topics in military history.